Hello, everyone. This is Craig here. Have you pre-ordered your copy of Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy of Escape yet? You can get it on places like Amazon or Penguin Random House. It's not yet out on Repeater Books' main site, but you can still pre-order the book. And if you haven't already, you can pick up a copy of The Philosopher's Tarot or become a member of our Patreon account. Today, we have a very special engagement. We are talking about uses and abuses of Nietzsche's work and the ways in which we can use Nietzsche's concepts to think through some of the political problems of our time. We're bringing back Justin, whom you might remember from last year's Nietzsche and Education episode. And also we have Devin, who has written a PhD on political philosophy that involves Nietzsche. Before we begin, we just want to thank everyone for your support. Okay, let's head to the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to Ask a Left Nietzschean on Acid Horizon, a show where we discuss the concepts and controversies surrounding Nietzsche's work and politics. Joining us on the show today are Justin and Devin. And if you've been following us for some time, perhaps you remember we did a show with Justin last summer on the work of Nietzsche and its relationship to education. Also with us, we have a newcomer, Devin, whom I discovered on Twitter due to the fact that his handle is, in fact, Left Nietzschean which strangely was not the namesake of this podcast, but his appearance <laughs> on the social media feed was serendipitous. I want to give both of you a chance to offer your own introduction. Justin, perhaps you could first reintroduce yourself and talk about what you do and maybe let us know if there's anything new going on in your life, reading or research. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, good to be back. <laughs> um, my name is Justin at non pedagogy on uh, Twitter. If you want to follow me there. Um, but uh yeah, I'm a early childhood teacher in Texas, uh, working in the public school system. So uh, I also uh, do a lot of reading of Nietzsche. But as for what's been going on recently, not too much different. Uh, I just got on summer break. Excited to just talk to you guys. Um, always exciting to to talk Nietzsche and uh, do that from the left for me. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Justin. And as I understand it, Devin, you have your PhD in philosophy, political philosophy. And as you introduce yourself, could you talk about your work, your dissertation, and anything else that you would like to have us know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thanks for having me on, Craig. I really appreciate the opportunity. This, I think this will be a great discussion. Um, yeah, I did my PhD in political theory. Um, my dissertation was focused on kind of the problem of political judgment, uh, specifically in the context of critical theory and Frankfurt School uh, critical theory particularly. Um, and I was interested in kind of in the questions of the normative foundations of critical theory. What are the kind of uh, metaphysical, epistemological grounds upon which we're making the kind of moral judgments, normative judgments we make when we criticize uh, forms of political power? Um, and Nietzsche very much figures in here um, as somebody that Frank the Frankfurt School is engaged with um, and also somebody who just offers profound reflections on kind of the foundations of morality um, or, or potentially the lack thereof. Um, so I elected not to go uh, kind of into uh, along the path of academic jobs. I'm uh, working at a law firm at present, uh, but also working on writing. Um, and my current project is on Nietzsche and madness, um, basically trying to dig into uh, Nietzsche's experience of mental illness, not just uh, with his breakdown towards the end of his life, but really throughout his life, how that figures into his philosophy and how that allows us to kind of develop an idea of reason that is always situated in relation to a conception of madness as potentially a limit of reason, potentially something that reason is productively a, a kind of 
productive adversary of reason um, or something that goes very to the very heart of reason. Um, and uh, so that kind of brings in my own experiences with mental illness um, and is kind of going to be a philosophical, psychological exploration. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, for this show, we tapped our patrons and many of our followers for a robust list of questions of which we may or may get to the entire list. We don't know, but given that there's a significant overlap between many of the questions that were submitted, I hope that we cover a lot of the ground that has been laid out before us. And also, if we have time, we may be pulling some questions from those who are listening live. So as we move forward with the discussion, feel free to submit your thoughtful thoughts in the chat. Also, we're going to presume that listeners have at least a little bit of knowledge of Nietzsche's work, but we'll get to, uh, we'll begin with a question that I think will address a theme that requires uh, quite frequently in Nietzsche's writing. And actually that question comes from Adam. So Adam, take it away. Okay, so my question really is about one of the sort of central themes I think that resonates for a lot of Nietzsche's work, particularly his ideas of affirmation, you know, affirming the eternal return, which is a particular kind of relationship to how he thinks about, you know, our relationship to time. In Dust Book Zarathustra, he says, you know, one of the biggest follies of, of the human condition is our propensity towards revenge. And what revenge means, in a way, is a kind of a an attempt to will backwards. You know, it's as if we can will away the past because we could not overcome it, or we could not simply stop it from happening. And this manifests with Nietzsche as a kind of a a grand psychology of the things that produce revenge and the kind of value systems that, for example, that rise from a culture of revenge. This is what he says in the Genealogy of Morals. But equally, you know, his his account of Christianity generally is a kind of revenge against death itself, whereas for him, Christ is actually a sort of figure who affirms death, takes on all life upon him. Now, I just wanted to ask how this critique of revenge stands in relation to its political import. I mean, what what's wrong about revenge, or even maybe retribution, if Nietzsche would say that our, most of our theories of justice are actually secretly theories of revenge? Because the, the question of you know, retribution or revenge or reversing or politically you know, having a political will which reverses aspects of the past is a very key aspect in you know de discourses around abolitionism uh critiques of castral politics and of course wider uh, discussions about film stuff like reparations and the like and repairing the damage done um if repairing damage done by empire by political and fascist and capitalist systems on the people who they attack so i just like to ask what you, what you both thought about this idea of revenge and particularly Nietzsche's critique of it in the political sense. Great. Since we have Devin as a newcomer, Devin, why don't you tackle that first, then we'll go to Justin. Yeah, sure. So I think this is a great question and really uh, an excellent starting point for kind of digging into Nietzsche's importance as a political thinker. Um, and Adam, I think you're you're getting at a couple important issues. The first is a question of, call it the metaphysics of revenge, the way that revenge is related to a certain conception of time, uh, an attempt to will backwards or erase a painful past experience. Um, and that is, you know, closely related to Nietzsche's entire effort to base of philosophy upon becoming um, on a kind of active, productive concept uh, of existence and life. Um, and then I think the other reason that it's it's interesting to get into is that while Nietzsche takes movements uh, that are fighting for justice, uh, such as socialism, as kind of his paradigmatic example of resentment in, in his time, it's it's kind of flipped, I think, in, in our time where we are offered with 
very obvious examples on the far right of uh, demagogues, ideologues who are driven, it seems predominantly by resentment, even to the point where they're willing to kind of come out and say, well, we're really about negating or destroying our enemy. We don't have a positive vision on our own. Um, and so I think, you know, in the first case, I think you're asking a really good question about whether the past and, you know, correcting the past ought to enter into our considerations of justice. And I think the answer is clearly that it should. And here we're going to get into questions of, you know, how far down the road with Nietzsche's uh, kind of uh, quest to affirm the eternal recurrence, do we really want to go from a political standpoint? Um, you know, his idea of the eternal recurrence seems, recurrence seems to embrace necessity, uh, fate, it, everything is his kind of connected in universal determinism. In politics, it seems like we're often committed to ideas of agency, ideas of freedom that are kind of part of practical reason. And so I think there's always going to be a productive tension here. Um, but I think that what Nietzsche's lesson essentially is for the political left in this respect is, is twofold. One, he's providing both a psychology and a kind of philosophical reconstruction of uh, both how revenge is in some ways self-undermining, how it serves to intensify the kind of pain and suffering that it is initially responding to that drives it. Um, and it's also uh, going to be uh, unable to create positive values in some fashion. Um, and I think the concern, the kind of overriding concern with affirmation is something that kind of has to be situated in our understanding of revolutionary discourse, our understanding of the kind of emancipati emancipatory ideal. Um, and there's a question that I think Nietzsche is posing of, well, what is it that we're affirming positively, right? Are we simply affirming revolution from a negative standpoint? Are we just trying to smash capitalism, just trying to smash the state? Or uh, are we, whether psychologically or in terms of how we justify ourselves, driven primarily by a positive, perhaps utopian vision of kind of what goods an emancipated society could achieve that our, you know, oppressed society is unable to achieve right now? Um, and I think that Nietzsche still offers really valuable lessons in this respect, both um, as a way of kind of orienting utopian hopes on the left, and then in addition, as a, as a critique of kind of the left's current political opponents, the Jordan Petersons of the world, who are so deeply driven by resentment out of an urge to protect a kind of traditional identity they feel is threatened, um, that it really consumes the entirety of their politics. Um, so in that respect, I think it animates a lot of dynamics uh, in kind of left and right politics today. Great, thanks. Uh, Justin, you know, I've, I'm gonna fold in the, the question that was posed directly to Justin on this, since, since I think it cuts so close to uh, the question we just attempted to answer, is that Justin once tweeted, capitalism is built on resentment, bad conscience, and the ascetic ideal. It is a Christian war machine. Uh, please explain that. Maybe, maybe you can kind of combine those two things since revenge is the topic right now. Yeah, sure. Well, I will try. Um, but, um, you know, that tweet especially is... Uh, you know, for me, when I was in school, um, I did a lot of work on Max Weber. Uh, so that tweet is me very much like tying in Nietzsche's sort of psychological critiques of uh, the Western um, philosophy and uh, running that right through like the Protestant uh, work ethic and, uh, you know, the birth of capitalism. So um, just thinking about uh, how... I mean, I think when you think about, you know, what you think of Calvinism, uh, that type of Protestantism, where it's like combines the ascetic ideal of these things are not for my own, you know, um, enjoyment. This is like 
destiny given to me by God and it's proved through my acts. Um, I don't spend any of this money on myself, the bad conscience of like, and the reason that I don't do that is because it's my fault um, that I am this guilty person that carries this sort of infinite debt. Um, and I also have this uh, level of resentment that it's, um, well, the, uh, that it's your fault. You know, um, the rejection of this relationship between the self and the world um, and that type of thing. And I think that going back to, you know, the original question, I think it's important to think about for Nietzsche, this idea of revenge versus the idea of attack, um, because he's not he's never saying don't um, don't sort of like go after your enemies in some way, whoever those enemies are. Um, I mean, I think it's important that we determine who the correct enemies are. I think that's a big thing for Nietzsche, but it's important that we're, instead of uh, um, doing it from a revenge standpoint, that we're doing it from an attack standpoint. And I think that that depends a lot on Deleuze really hones in on this like active versus reactive um, forces in the body. And I think that like, it's important to remember that uh, I think that for Nietzsche, if you're attacking, it's, it's like a bodily um, force will through you that is not being represented in some way and then when you're looking into the past you're automatically representing your enemies you're representing these things that you're fighting against and by doing that you're just you're staying in this reactive space versus this active space which is going to as Devin was pointing out produce a lot of the same reproduce a lot of the same both psychological states and political states that you're attempting to fight against maybe those things are reversed maybe somebody else is on top and somebody's on the bottom but you're still kind of reproducing this master-slave um, relationship with all of these like concomitant problems that come along with it for Nietzsche. And I think that like, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think thinking about things like that in terms of like what Deleuze and Guattari call minor politics, you know, is useful where it's like, if you're given these cramped spaces um, and there's these this bodily will to like overcome these cramped spaces, you're going to produce attacks, you're going to produce something pushing yourself or pushing the group of people that you like identify with towards something like a revolution or something like um, something like freedom that you want to go towards. It doesn't have to be in the sense of like playing the game of representation um, that will keep you sort of trapped in that way. I mean, I think that you can reach that point of fighting against your slavery through these sort of like Nietzschean techniques versus recommitting re yourself to all of these things that he's critiquing. Yeah. It, I think that's exactly right. And sorry. Oh, go ahead, Devin. Go ahead. Yeah. I wanted to pick up, I think, particularly on the point about Deleuze and Guattari, because I think that we'd probably agree that the central or the richest kind of treatment of these themes is, is the genealogy of morals. Um, in the first essay is where, you know, we, we get a clear. Uh, breakdown of these kind of two types of moral valuation um, that he describes as master and slave morality, typically try to avoid those kinds of terms. But the contrast, I think, between types of moral valuations is important. And I think one way that this kind of relates to, this, to the discussion is that I think it shifts the emphasis away from the content or the specific content of the ideals themselves that we are uh, advocating. So we're shifting to a question of why we're motivated towards to accept certain ideals, what forms of reasoning we're engaging with, and whether ultimately kind of we're driven by a need to affirm life or a kind of fatigue or sadness at life, a desire to negate life. Um, and I think it's important to kind of 
learn the dynamics of moral valuation that Nietzsche sketches out in the genealogy as a contrast between a kind of affirmative morality that starts with some kind of value that is taken to be uh, creative, productive, um, and then kind of derives as a kind of contrast from that an idea of what is bad as what detracts from this primary, uh, primarily affirmative identity or primary affirmative value. And the contrast is a morality that focuses on identifying an enemy um, and then identifies itself as good as, as a contrast with um, the identified enemy. Um, and I think what you'll see is that Nietzsche uses these different types of moral valuations in many different contexts to deconstruct and reconstruct many different types of moral ideals and I think what that means is that there's always going to be some kind of tension between the moral philosophy that Nietzsche's given us, the picture of morality that Nietzsche's given us, and the particular judgments that Nietzsche himself draws as a political philosopher of his time and how he applies those to the institutions of his time, which he does recognize is quite different than, you know, the time a century or two from his, his writing that he anticipates might be ripe for his work, right? Um, and so I think that's an important distinction to draw. And it's where we can say, well, look, you know, when we examine our, our belief in justice, our, our fight for justice is really sp inspired by revenge, or is there an affirmative ideal of emancipation really at work there? Was Nietzsche wrong to identify that as kind of the primary source of resentment in politics rather than, say, an aristocratic grievance politics that tries to restore a position of lost privilege, for example? Um, so I, I think trying to calibrate those forms of valuation with the present rather than just imitating Nietzsche's own judgments is an important element of engaging with them here. Great. Thanks, Devin. I want to bring Will into the discussion, um, particularly the, the idea that Nietzsche's ideas um, are useful in terms of achieving a kind of utopian project. Uh, Will works with Foucault quite a bit, and you know, for whom um, Nietzsche was uh, an, you know, an incredible mediator. Um, do you have a response to that? Like, where do you see Nietzsche, Nietzsche's role, for example, in um, in the, in the scope or realm of constituent politics? Is, is, is Nietzsche merely a constituent thinker or is there a constituent capacity to his thought? Is he useful in any regard to the, the politics that you cleave to? Yeah, I'm going to be pretty, pretty controversial and say no. Okay. <laughs> like that's the function of the eternal return, right? Mm -hmm. Is to show precisely that power can't be grounded um, in that way. Right. The relationship between, for example, like, let's say in the same way, this is the this is the same kind of approach to, let's say, sexual liberation politics. It says one day sex will be good again. Right. Um, and I think the function of, say, Nietzsche's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the function of Nietzsche's eternal return is, in a sense, something that needs to be tapped into here. But at the same time, I think it's I think Devin is, is entirely right to say that what what is so powerful in in Nietzsche is not perhaps necessarily the particularity of given theses, right? That's not really the strength of of Nietzsche. If you're if the Nietzsche you're trying to find is just a cultural critic, um, then that's fine, right? Like Contra Wagner is fascinating for that reason. If you need a good critique of like the Ritornello or something like that, right? Um, but uh, the the strength of Nietzsche is is to be found precisely in his approach to the question of history, in his approach to the question of, of historical singularity, continuity. Um, and I think that for that reason, uh, Nietzsche's project is always, is always self-revising, right? So 
just if you if you simply just look at the difference between the representation of of uh, Dionysus in or the the uh, no let's let's be let's be more specific here. If you look at the representation of uh, the relationship between the Apollonian and the Dionysian in say some of the passages of the gay science or Ecce Homo, right? What happens between these two periods is that Nietzsche finds a fundamental flaw at the core of of the birth of tragedy, which is oppositional thinking, right? And oppositional thinking haunts haunts Nietzsche that allows for a dialectical history to creep back in, which allows for what? Historical continuity that Nietzsche is allergic to, right? And what does that come down to? The cosmic reality of the eternal return for Nietzsche. Now, we can have a debate about whether or not Nietzsche actually believes in the cosmic reality of the eternal return. Um, but I think that uh, when it comes to the particularity of Nietzsche's politics, like we have to, we have to, for example, you know, Nietzsche not being a particular fan of, say, the French Revolution, right? We have to move beyond uh, simple, vulgar, um, particular readings of Nietzsche and start to actually get to the core of his metaphysics there um, in a way that I think certain discussions that Foucault had with Maoists in the 70s did. There's a huge, there's a huge bridge between Foucault and Nietzsche on the question of the replication of bourgeois justice at the heart of, at the heart of the um, the French Revolution, and in fact, like revolutionary psychology or French revolutionary psychology makes possible what we will consider bourgeois justice in the 19th century, right? So I think that I think that when it comes to you know a relationship between Nietzsche and the French Nietzscheans, Foucault is different. Like Foucault is not like Klasowski. Foucault is not like Deleuze. Foucault's not engaging with Nietzsche at the level of the metaphysical. Foucault right. is a much more methodological, historical relationship to Nietzsche. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, elements of the rest of Nietzsche's work that I think resonate deeply with some of the political commitments of Foucault. And I think that's why maybe Foucault's comment in Italy, when he was like, I'm not really a Nietzsche of Zarathustra, I'm more of a Nietzsche of the birth of tragedy and the untimely meditations. I think Foucault's missing out on, on certain, on certain um, elements that, are, that constitute what Foucault will call the threshold of modernity, particularly the biopolitical, that exist in Nietzsche's, uh, in Nietzsche's account of uh, that which makes small, right? Which I think that which makes small is a remarkable account of, of the beginning of physiocratic biopolitical modernity. Um, but I think that uh, the strength that Foucault saw in Nietzsche was to <laughs> subject philosophy to the very thing it wanted to take a hold of, which is a retrospective account of history, and instead to flip, to flip the question and to provide a history of the present that holds philosophy accountable. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that there are, there are different... Um, there are different approaches to Nietzsche's politics. I don't, I'm not particularly sure if, unless, unless you want to ground it in the will to power, which has its own problems, I think a, a, a particular affirmative politics predicated on uh, a constitutive claim to right uh, would, be, would be problematized or is problematized by Nietzsche, right? Like that is part of the reason why um, Nietzsche is historically so negative about the socialist. So. Yeah, thanks, Will. Well, I'll have Devin respond to that. And Justin, if you want to add anything, you can follow that up. 
Well, thanks. Well, I mean, I, I agree that I think you're kind of delineating between two sort of strands here of how Nietzsche is received by the post-structuralists. And I, I guess I, I sort of end up feeling like they they may coexist a bit uncomfortably in the account that you've given. And one is this more historical methodological strain in Foucault, which is interested in kind of the genealogical method of Nietzsche uh, the kind of demystifying critique of certain moral ideals that are taken to be natural in a kind of mistaken way at present. Um, and then you have, as you said, with Deleuze and Klosowski, more of a explicit attempt to reconstruct will to power as a metaphysics, uh, an eternal return as a metaphysics. Um, but I think, you know, what you've described is, is, you know, a bit of a tension here, right? So I do actually think that there's good reason to think that Nietzsche held some version of the eternal return as a cosmological hypothesis rather than just an ethical test. And I think, you, you know, they, there's plenty of uh, sketches in Nietzsche's notebooks, albeit incomplete, uh, that represent efforts to scientifically prove the eternal recurrence. You know, it's, it's hard to account for sort of the genesis of the idea and his interest in proving it in that way without some kind of cosmological bite of that kind. Um, but I do think that if you're going to get into this like task of ontology and get into will to power as metaphysics or as ontology, and then you're going to be pushing the limits of a purely historicist or purely historical mode of interrogation. Um, and I do think that's a kind of analysis of Nietzsche that makes a whole lot of sense for the genealogy. Um, it's not necessarily the framing that I would use for a lot of the rest of his work. And I also think kind of the problem that he identifies in birth tragedy you know, oppositional thinking is one aspect of it. A kind of lingering Hegelianism, as he puts it, is is one aspect of it. Um, but a misunderstanding of the Dionysian as an effort to kind of uh, suspend life's suffering in a kind of anesthesia, art is anesthesia. Uh, he sees that kind of Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer model of art as too present in Birth of Tragedy and kind of clouding in the form of Dionysian affirmation he's really after. Um, so I do think that oppositional thinking has something to do with it, but I, I don't think it's really the, I'm not sure I would identify it as the defining thing that Nietzsche uh, breaks with Birth of Tragedy on. Great. Justin, I, I know you're a big reader of Foucault too. Was there anything there that you wanted to respond to? No, I mean, not directly. I mean, in terms of like Foucault, I will, um, you know, at this point, uh, do a little bit of, um, of like tip of the hat to uh, Will on that. But, um, you know, I did want to like circle back and, you know, just say about, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> say a little bit about, um, uh, that question about capitalism, resentment and, uh, bad conscience and, uh, mm -hmm. the aesthetic ideal and it being a war machine. And I think that it's, I just wanted to be clarifying on my end that I think that, you know, I, I read through nomadology in preparation of this because of this question. And I was like, do I even know what a war machine is? Does anyone know what a war machine is? Uh, do Deleuze and Guattari know what a war machine is? And That's the key question. So I, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, looking back, I just wanted to make that point that I was like, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit loose and, and free there with that idea of a war machine, but just trying to capture that idea that it is no longer, uh, just simply a Christian thing. You know, I wouldn't want to like tie capitalism anymore to Christianity. Um, I think that those like psychological elements are still there in it, but obviously it is, uh, it's sort of like off on its own now and both in capture by the state used by the state and feeding the state and producing these whole, uh, relationships that they talk about with the war machine. But, um, 
I did want to at least like circle back and say like I don't think that there's still a one to one correspondence between Christianity and capitalism that way. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go into the pool of questions. I'm going to pull one out and then I'll have Adam and Will kind of like identify one that they would like to ask. Uh, But I think this is an important one to get to before we get to the sort of meatier political questions, although maybe this is the meatiest of political questions. Could you explain Nietzsche's critique of representation? And also another idea that's popped up here is this notion of oppositional thinking um, that's been mentioned by Devin and uh, Will just a few times. So, Devin, maybe you can start on that. Yeah, sure. Well, I think a a good place to start since we were talking about birth of tragedy and kind of how those themes develop throughout Nietzsche's work is how representation functions there um, and kind of use that as a jumping off point. Um, So representation functions in Birth of Tragedy on the side of Apollo or the Apollonian. Um, And the idea is that the Apollonian represents, uh, you know, uh, this term he takes from uh, Schopenhauer, the sort of the principle of individuation. The world of appearances is one that gives us uh, individual objects, individual things. Their boundaries are demarcated um, and they kind of shine forth as beautiful individual forms, right, as representations. Um, The Dionysian, by contrast, represents a kind of moment of intoxication as opposed to dream um, where the boundaries between individual things flow together everything kind of merges into a primal unity of life Um, and this opposition you know Nietzsche identifies this as a kind of antagonism or opposition that is uh, what uh, essentially creates attic tragedy um, and birth of tragedy Um, but he'll go on to kind of revise his conception of how each of these terms functions and and we'll come to see that the Dionysian comes to be the the really all-important category for him um, by the end of his life Um, but what you see I think in birth of tragedy and the theme that carries through his work is Nietzsche's grappling with a kind of legacy of Kant, uh, where we start with a kind of philosophy according to which we are given, appearances are given to intuition, right? And instead of trying to access the things in themselves, we focus on describing the transcendental conditions of possibility of how things can appear uh, in experience. And Schopenhauer takes up this Kantian problem, um, and you can then see how it appears in Birth of Tragedy, Uh, where Nietzsche then starts to do his own, kind of do his own thing with looking at how art and aesthetics function uh, within how the subject, the human subject, shapes kind of the world of representation. Um, And then in his middle work, starting to bring in kind of natural science, uh, an account of uh, psychology and the drives, an account of physiology uh, in kind of his way of understanding what I take still take to be kind of Kant's transcendental. What is this kind of these kind of conditions that shape the possibility of representations as they appear to us as subjects? And I still take Nietzsche to be kind of within that framework, but having a radical uh, distinct idea of what kind of grounds the world of representation. And what you'll see later on is that it's uh, ultimately going to be based on the will to power as kind of the overall unifying principle of the organic world. Uh, And we, in part, as living beings, create representations uh, in an effort to cope with and justify suffering. This is a function of the will to power. We affirm suffering by overcoming it in a kind of representation that we can live with. Um, And I think Nietzsche's entire view of representation has to be kind of situated in how he understands the subject as not just knowing the world, right, not just having representations, but always having to kind of cope with and incorporate 
the experiences uh, that it has, um, kind of live with them, build them into a kind of overall system that can allow the uh, entity to continue to act. Um, so representation is always based on kind of is a product of and is based on that kind of picture of the drives and will to power in particular. Great. Thank you, Devin. Um, Justin, I, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. I wonder if you can connect this to education at all. I mean, this is, uh, you know, when I was thinking about Nietzsche while I was a teacher, this was a very sort of prominent philosophical theme that was at the forefront of my mind when planning lessons and things like that. Maybe you already have a comment loaded up, but perhaps you could just respond to that as well. Yeah, um, I was just going to echo in like slightly different words what something, you know, what Devin was saying, and I can talk about that too, but just that, you know, when I went, was talking before about revenge versus attack, I think that, you know, this is a kind of a Deleuzian interpretation of Nietzsche, but you know, in terms of this idea of representation, that is the, that is the, you know, the slave's conception of power is to have your power recognized, have it recognized, have it represented. Um, and that's what for, you know, for Nietzsche connects it to a resentment is this, um, it's only this like sort of power of recognition or the content of this representation, making it into a competition, you know, that gives like, as Devin was saying, like this meaning, this continuing on um, to give yourself that uh, that um, that stake in the fight, where um, you can continue to sort of like go forward, and but only through representation, and that is, I think, like the biggest trap is trapping ourselves in that from Nietzsche's standpoint. So, in terms of education in the classroom, I mean, it's definitely something I think about a lot because even particularly like the age of the children that I'm at, they're very sort of like on the edge of like where their representation of themselves even is, let alone the rest of the world. And they're creating those things as we, you know, as we interact with each other through in the classroom. And, you know, I talked about it quite a bit, I think on the last podcast, and I would just continue to lean into the idea of like, this is where things like play and all of its forms, like allow us to, um, continue to experiment with those type of things, not allow ourselves to be like trapped in like a representation like that. Um, part of that is what you do as a teacher in the, with the power dynamic in the classroom, like how you're able to like shield the outside power dynamic that's coming in from the state, from the administration, from the parents, how you're able to like create a new type of relationships that you can have both as the teacher with the children, but also with the children themselves. And like that to me is the type of thing that I'm thinking about when I'm talking about like doing like trainings for teachers is like, how can we like talk about incorporating this play dance laughter curriculum type of situation into the classroom and have it uh, ward off these like, um, you know, stiltifying sort of like representations that they're going to, I mean, it's like, it's a battle of just epic proportions. And like, I'm just thinking about like the small part that I can do in the classroom, but that is like fundamental to the day to day and what we try to do, especially in my classroom. Muted. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Justin. I, I'm thinking also about, you know, what's tragically occurring in places like Florida today, uh, where, you know, the state intervention by the far right 
is now imposing upon this this caricature that they've established of of the teacher in the classroom and the edifice of the school itself uh, to the extent that it's going to impose, you know, a, a kind of authority that stands to get in the way of the teacher-student relationship, which is radically different than what, like you said, like what the parents um, and, you know, the administration and even the state bring to the table when it comes to, you know, incorporating children into our society or, you know, allowing them opportunities for growth and exploration. Um, But anyway, that aside, um, we have Adam and Will on deck to ask a particular question. So what do you got, Adam? Well, I'm just going to select this one from the pile because just to to highlight the the Oscar left Nietzschean port, but it's just, it's just, I guess it's going to be one of the first questions that people have when they think about Nietzsche in the context of a left Nietzscheanism. And I guess if I'd like to foreground it a little bit in terms of, you know, what what did Nietzsche think a communist or particularly a socialist or an anarchist was? Um, for a socialist, uh, for Nietzsche, would have been someone like the notorious anti-Semite Eugen During, who uh, Engels was famously sent off by Marx to go, you know, attack in, in anti-During, um, a very sort of naturalistic conception of socialism, very sort of what we would now call utopian, but I would say far worse than that lot. An anarchist, I think, really for him is, is Pierre is Pierre Joseph Proudhon, um, most famous for the phrase, you know, property is theft. And in that sense, the, the anarchist revolution would be a, a rebellion against the past. It's a, a claiming on the debt of that theft, which I guess is probably Nietzsche's main problem with it. But there's also the question of a, a hidden influence on Nietzsche, and this is kind of my soapbox here, which is I think Nietzsche was very much influenced by the work of Max Stirner to some extent, mostly because he 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 read he read a book that had a summary of Stirner in it, which was this is the biggest philosopher of the will since Schopenhauer. And so I think there is there is actually some space of wiggle room for anarchistic tendencies in, in Nietzsche's work specifically, especially when you get something like Dusbeck Zarathustra, you know, just the state as the new idol. I just wanted to sort of I sort of open this more general question in how do each of you personally think that you know Nietzsche's views has this strong resonance with communists or, or and it's not certainly communists or anarchists because you know we're not talking about the ANCAPs here we're talking about goddamn communizing anarchos right here so I just want to throw that one out there and see what you both thought about it. Yeah, go ahead, Devin. All right. Um, yeah, so I think I, I would take it in kind of different directions depending on whether we're talking about anarchism versus communism. Let's start with anarchism uh, in this case. Um, so I think one thing that's interesting about Nietzsche is that there will be some affinities, uh, as you already noted in you know reference to the, the passage on the state and Zarathustra. There will be some affinities between anarchism and how Nietzsche thinks about the nation state politics of his time. And I'm particularly talking about kind of the period after he's broken with Wagner and his early work and come to be disgusted uh, with the kind of German nationalistic tendencies he's he's seeing around him. Um, And I think, you know, one influence here was Jacob Burkhardt. Um, There is an idea uh, that I think goes back to kind of Nietzsche's classicism of the political state as ultimately uh, mostly concerned with violence and coercion and therefore is antithetical in some fashion to the project of culture, uh, which is based in some fashion upon human freedom. Um, You know, you can find Nietzsche saying as early as kind of his notebooks in 1869, how art demands the destruction of the state, essentially. Um, So the complicating factor, of course, is that uh, 
Nietzsche also has a metaphysics that is grounded in a concept of power um, and construes uh, not just human relationships, but organic relationships as a whole, arguably all of ontology, um, as kind of relationships of domination and obedience or command and obedience. Um, and this, you know, we don't need to get too far into the metaphysics here, but the tension here, I think, is that Nietzsche identifies um, as a kind of critic of the modern state, some of the same uh, tendencies that anarchists are concerned about, about how the attempt to legitimize political rule through the state will ultimately result in unacceptable forms of violence, essentially, no matter what. Nietzsche can, at times accepts this thesis. The problem, though, is that he has a picture of human society that can never be freed of power relationships. Um, and I don't think this is necessarily a problem for anarchist thought. I think it's actually a kind of fertile ground for thinking about kind of the ways that Nietzsche discusses the psychology of kind of adversarial relationships, relationships of command and obedience, how they can be reversed, uh, how the compl their complexities... And I think there's there are lessons to be learned about like, well, what would a society of mutual aid look like granting that certain uh, forms of conflict, certain forms of disagreement are always going to potentially arise in human relationships. There always might be destabilizing kind of power asymmetries. Um, and I think rather than treating power, rather than a liberal thinker who treats power as primarily centered in the state, but sees power kind of like Foucault is permeating most of human social relationships, there's a great deal of reflection on how we prevent relationships of power from ossifying into uh, unhelpful hierarchies or unfair hierarchies, and how we prevent these relationships of adversarial or adversarial relationships from becoming vengeful um, or hateful. Um, so, yeah, how about I do the anarchist part and Justin can pick up with the communist part from here. <laughs> I can come back to it, too. But yeah. All right, Justin, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, you know, I like to take the sort of, like, idea of using Nietzsche um, from a communist standpoint, uh, sort of like how I imagine that Nietzsche is being used by Deleuze and Guattari, especially in anti-anarchist, where it's like, you know, and maybe people don't disagree that, or would disagree this is what they're doing, but using Nietzsche as a knife to cut as much away that you can, that is like going to be problematic or going to not be revolutionary potential from Marx, you know, from the work of the socialists, um, in terms of like just whittling that down to its most, um, to its most, uh, effective sort of, um, Self, I guess, if we're going to be reductive about it. But, um, you know, I think that, like, even some of what Devin is talking about through um, the anarchists applies to the communists. I mean, if we're actually thinking about what communism might look like, I mean, we're imagining, I think, at the very least, different kinds of individuals in terms of, like, how we're conceiving of ourselves, how we're conceiving of other people. Um, I know that one of the biggest sort of impediments to probably both anarchists and communists and Nietzsche coming together is this idea of hierarchies, which is very much uh, foundational for Nietzsche's philosophy. Um, and I think that as long as we're thinking of things as like filial hierarchies or ossified hierarchies, like he's saying, um, I mean, that's going to be a problem. It's a problem, I think, for Nietzsche. Um, I think it would be for anyone who's familiar with Nietzsche's work. But if you're talking... My conception, at least, of reading through, especially the French Nietzscheans, is that, you know, it's very much like Deleuze and Guattari's rhizomatic 
situation where, of course, there are going to be like power differences in those relationships. You know, I mean, to be like uh, all Marxist about it, you know, and at some level, I think that there's like, you know, a from each according to his ability to each according to, you know, to his needs type of situation here where there's a recognition that within this, like, whatever this mass of individuals, people that are getting together and working together, mutual aid, communism, whatever that is, where like some people are going to have this, some people are going to have this, these things can change. Allowing those hierarchies to be like flexible, multiple, changing, like those are the type of things where, you know, I'm far from having an idea of how we get to some sort of like Nietzschean communism and actually live that. But I think that like these type of ideas where we can borrow from Nietzsche and apply to Marx or powerful marks and applied to Nietzsche, like help us get over a lot of these things that we're replicating unconsciously in our practice that were, I mean, and I think for like Sterner, um, you know, it seems like one of the big differences between Sterner and Nietzsche was this idea of like, and I'm not like a Sterner expert, so I could be wrong on this, but like, he's more still like the idea of what's different between Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, like is the soul unitary or is it multiple? And for Nietzsche, it's multiple. And I think for Sterner, but certainly for Schopenhauer, it's unitary still. And then, like, how does that still replicate all of these other power relationships that anarchists, communists, whoever are trying to overcome when I think that a multiple self from an Nietzsche standpoint is going to be provide us with more uh, flexibility and more ability to, like, work towards these sort of, like, whatever this, like, communist anarchist goals look like in terms of, like, an actually lived life. I think related to that, there's a picture or critique throughout Nietzsche of the uh, utilitarian picture of the instrumentally instrumentally rational self, you know, homo economicus that is at the heart of kind of how capitalism conceives of subjectivity, how it conceives of reason. Um, and I think it kind of get, gets back to the theme of Weber earlier with the idea of rationalization in Weber and, and rationalization, the transformation of, of processes into forms of uh, instrumental reason um, was also important for Frankfurt School critical theory and is kind of a, a way in, in which it enters into Marxist thought. Um, but I think that's one area that, where Nietzsche offers a powerful critique of the capitalism while also offering a warning towards uh, to socialists uh, where he sort of has the concern that socialism uh, plays into a similar instrumental conception of reason as capitalism does that is concerned primarily with a model of material happiness, um, these sort of like rational calculative methods for achieving it efficiently. Um, and, you know, the challenge to sort of differentiate kind of that conception of self from the conception capitalism gives us. Um, I think that's a theme that Nietzsche is grappling with throughout his work. Great. I actually want to bring Will into this, um, you know, given that Nietzsche wrote his works in the uh, the latter portion of the 19th century, there was a particular kind of political anarchism that was prominent at that time. Um, it's arguable that the shape of anarchism has changed. Do you see, I mean, do you think, Will, that, that Nietzsche's criticism of the anarchists of his time, or maybe even anarchists in general, as these kind of resentful leveling types, um, you know, following the, the sort of herd mentality, is that an accurate characterization? Um, is there a form of anarchism that you think would be amenable to Nietzsche's ideas? Um, or is there a place at least for a Nietzschean critique of what's happening in anarchist movements? Amenability is a is an answer that I can't provide in a way that I think is meaningful for Nietzsche. But 
Um, I think that when we're talking about Nietzsche's response to classical anarchism, when we're talking about Nietzsche's response to to Proudhon primarily, but also to to the to the anarchists who would use Nietzsche, namely Emma Goldman, right? Um, <laughs> he's essentially criticizing these anarchists for taking the people that the state creates and then saying, this is the administration of things, right? Nietzsche's criticism of anarchism is precisely the account of the, the kind of Engelsian account of communism and frankly, the other side of the Engelsian account of anarchism. Like what Nietzsche is essentially criticizing is precisely the reality that most anarchists would like to see the relations and forces of production be maintained without without the without essentially the conditions that make civil society possible in the conventional theory of the state right so when when nietzsche criticizes for example in a kind of strangely of course racializing kind of way the english right for their account of say uh, the basically homo economicus right as as uh, we've been talking about, what essentially the the anarchists of this period are attempting to do is to pull away the 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 cold lie that crawls from the mouth of the state, right? That says, "I am the people," right? Take the validity of the constituent force of that, reinsert it back into the people, and then say, "And here, now, now we can be the pure administration of things," and essentially. That's a politics of of reaction. It's a politics of arrogation of the state. Um, so no, no, I don't think I, I when when Nietzsche's criticizing criticizing uh, anarchists, the moralizing elements of anarchism, particularly in the gay science, it's important to keep in mind what anarchism meant, right? And we talked about this a little bit. Well, I wasn't there, but you talked about this a little bit with. Catherine Malibu, I know Catherine Malibu's concept of anarchism and say like mine is just a graduate student with no idea what I'm doing are different. Um, but like it's worth noting that Catherine Malibu can somewhat confidently say capitalism took something from anarchism, right? Capitalism has arrogated something from anarchism. And it is precisely the flipping of this constituent lie uh, that the state makes uh, that in a certain sense uh, it relies on. I, I think that I think that when we talk about the function of of the state in classical anarchism, even specifically in Emma Goldman, what most classical anarchists are looking for is uh, the the rectification or the reconciliation of the failure of the state to properly administer things. Then, in fact, without it, the proper administration of things exists far more seamlessly. And for Nietzsche, uh, that's the foreclosing of culture, right? Um, so, like, I, I think for 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 him to understand the the criticism of anarchism, like, it is actually quite important to understand what an anarchist meant, also what a socialist meant. Like, socialist did not mean like. Karl Marx, like it meant Ferdinand Lassalle, but even more so, it meant like early, early, early accounts of what we would now probably just call like essentially social democracy, right? 
Like, so uh, when, when people talk about, oh, Nietzsche's critique of the socialists, Nietzsche's critique of the anarchists, these are very, very particular and politically viable political formations that existed within parliamentary politics at the time, what would become parliamentary politics at the time. They were utterable within political movements. So like to, to subject Nietzsche to like the anarchism of Marcello Tari or Tikkun, it would be completely <laughs> like you can do it, but um, you have to be very careful. Um, and I think that's when you know Nietzsche's because I think you've tweeted this before, Craig. So now we're, we're we're all being held accountable for our posts. You tweeted once something that that still resonates with me. Like three years later, you were like Zarathustra is an account of biopolitics. I was like yes, like in so many different periods or in so many different parts of that text. Uh, it is it is specifically an account of biopolitics, whether it's an account of the function of the press and the spectacle, or an account of the function of the itinerant life, uh, the the predictable uh, the predictable life. Um, so, like, yeah, I think that the the application of of uh, Nietzsche to to anarchism, particularly in those passages in the gay science, like, has to be done pretty carefully. Great. I, I, I feel obliged to bring Adam in because Max Stirner was mentioned. Um, what about the charge that Max Stirner is just a vacuous ego hole versus Nietzsche being the plentitudinous, multitudinous guy? Max Stirner only wrote one book, and uh, it was a particular intervention into uh, a small bar full of arguing Hegelians, many of them uh, whom, uh, some of them actually Nietzsche met later on, for example, David Strauss and uh, Bruno Bauer, less Strauss in Stirner's case. It's it's not really a unitary ego. He just doesn't give an account of the ego. You know, he is, there isn't really the ego doesn't really exist in Stern's work. But it's mainly just the idea of refusing to give an account of yourself for for the enemy for someone, so that they can therefore impose a kind of debt upon you. Uh, the idea of Sterner is that you know it's it's not so much a revenge for Sterner. That's why he critiques Proudhon as well. I mean, Sterner and Nietzsche have some severe differences. I mean, the only sort of real clear. Uh, unity of the two it is really one in uh, Das Buch Zarathustra when uh, Nietzsche is writing about the, the virtuous. And he says, oh, the, these people who are so virtuous and moralizing, they just want to get paid. And this is a critique of Kant as well, the idea that in order to have a moral action to be possible, whilst you can't do it for the sake of, you know, you can't do it for the sake of uh, reward, it has to be done purely out of goodwill. Nonetheless, in order to do it out of goodwill, you have to presuppose an immortal uh, soul and freedom and God as not as actual things, but as uh, things you have to presuppose in order to act morally. So there's, there's an overlap there. Um, yeah. Great. Will, what was the question that you had on deck? Let me open my, my questions real quick. <laughs> okay, <go for> <laughs> um, the question that I have on deck here is actually related to the question of representation, but a very different kind of representation. Uh, how would a so-called left Nietzschean respond to Nietzsche's continuous critique of democracy? Does a left Nietzschean have any commitments to democracy as an institution? And I think that uh, Tronti wrote a, a famous essay on democracy, biopolitics, and Nietzsche that always rings in my head whenever I see a question like this. So maybe we'll maybe we'll open with Justin this time on the political, and then see if maybe there are there are sparks that fly there. 
Uh, I'll just say no and then mute myself. I do not have any commitments to democracy as an institution. No, um, I will say a little bit more. But I mean, I think that that is the like, um, it's difficult. Um, just because like, it, just going back to what, um, to, to, you know, what we were talking about with Adam, I mean, there are so many, there are so many commitments that one has to make one to one to one's views about all these different types of things to think about participating, especially in like a liberal democracy um, that we have right now. That being said, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, you, there's a wide variety of ways that you can take Nietzsche and apply him. I mean, I've certainly read and enjoyed things on Nietzsche and democracy, like just about talking about the Agon and like bringing that into democracy and like how this contestation of views is important and is a very Nietzschean concept. And I think that those things are fair and valid. And I mean, I will admit that I go vote in elections and you know what I mean? I think that there's like, um, there's, there's no reason as a left Nietzschean, if that's what I'm going to call myself to, you know, to be like sort of like on principle opposed to like um political acts within a democratic institution but i mean i think that like when i'm thinking about being you know on the left as a nation it's more like communism it's more like anarchy as opposed to democracy i do think that like there are so many um just irredeemably problematic you know, issues with like the sort of liberal democracy that we're talking about that we have in the States or in Western Europe. I mean, I can think of, you know, can we define democracy as something like, you know, uh, a communist uh, mutual aid situation? Like, I think that that's possible. Um, but I would, you know, overall, I think that uh, you can, I would always say that you can take what you want from Nietzsche, little bits or a lot, you know, and you can apply that how is best to you in your particular situation. And, you know, I, I think that that can be done and still consider yourself like a liberal Democrat who is looking to like ward off the real actual evils of like the right, as we've talked about before. Um, and that's important and a bulwark in some way, but I think that um, it becomes very difficult to take even more than a little bit of Nietzsche's critique seriously and also be like i'm committed to democracy as an institution i think that that is like a uh, a difficult place for myself to to stand in so i'll yield on that one all right i'll i'll bite that bullet um let's let's do the nietzsche in defense of democracy here um so let's say <laughs> um so when it comes to saying you know what what does a left nietzschean think i mean i'm not i would not consider myself a left nietzschean in part because i, I don't think there's really any such thing as a nietzschean as such, I think that if you're thinking about things that way, you're responding to Nietzsche's work kind of in, in the wrong way already as kind of giving you a philosophy you can subscribe to. Um, but as somebody who's very interested in Nietzsche and is working on Nietzsche and also considers myself to be politically on the left, I can say, yes, I think that uh, the left should have commitments to democracy as an institution and also particularly should have a commitment to not running it together with liberalism into the combination of liberal democracy, but to continuing to tease them apart as principles. And this is somewhere where Nietzsche has proven very important for democratic theory over the past, you know, several decades. Um, you know, Justin alluded to some of these theories of agonistic democracy, um, you know, in Bonnie Honig, you get an idea of Nietzsche as providing us with a model of kind of unruly, disruptive, creative freedom. 
um, that creates kind of adverse productive adversarial encounters in democracy. And the target is kind of a uh, Habermas inspired idea of deliberative democracy, where we all kind of sit down and legitimize power by talking about our principles and what ought to be done. Um, you know, this is a, the Nietzsche, Nietzschean model comes in to uh, provide an idea of democracy is grounded in contestation as in disruption and particularly disruption of, you know, what constitutes kind of the, the idea of the good life or the morally right uh, that at any, any given time might be ideologically governing the decisions of a particular, you know, state. Um, then you also get um, kind of theories of Nietzschean, demo Nietzschean democratic theory that's a little more focused on the ethics of the self, um, someone like William Connolly. Um, and here the idea is that there is a philosophy of becoming indifference that affirms the plurality of identity that recognizes that all identity is relational and, and constituted through some relationship to exteriority to the other. Um, and reading, you know, fascism um, in certain forms of like aggressive um, right wing philosophy as attempts to create a stabilized, closed identity that, that is unaffected by difference. Um, and Connolly presents Nietzsche as, as giving us rather a, a kind of robust ethics of difference for situating and criticizing our identities in uh, a democratic setting defined by pluralism. Um, and, you know, it is very clearly true that Nietzsche is a, an extremely sharp critic of leveling tendencies in democracy. He's a critic of equal rights. Um, and he seems to endorse, oftentimes endorse hierarchy as something that's that's valuable even in itself. But I think the right way to I I think the right way to view this is that in in many cases Nietzsche is picturing any relationship of hierarchy as unstable and multiple, um, as always involving multiple relationships of command and obedience. In the sense, we are always both commanding and obeying at the same time. And this is not actually that dissimilar to sort of the idea of democracy in classical Athens of ruling and being ruled in turn and constantly having to negotiate this problem of rule uh, without appeal to uh, some kind of single person or institution that we can give up our you know, right to command and obey to uh, and build a consensus around. So I actually still think that, um, you know, I, uh, I would would argue that Nietzsche not only has valuable resources for uh, democratic theory still to offer, um, but I think that, you know, his critique of equality under, in, under democracy, of leveling tendencies under democracy, I think that's a point where we should part ways with Nietzsche while also recognizing it as a formidable challenge um, to how we're accustomed to thinking about morality and how we're usually used to grounding conceptions of rights that we do appeal to in, in democratic settings. Great. Does anybody want to respond to that or add on? I think it's also worth adding on, especially you know, what we're saying about the idea of a left Nietzscheanism is it's 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 fundamentally less of an ideology or a system in the sense of, you know, as you said, you subscribe to it, we go, we, I've read all these books, I think all these positions are one, coherent, two, unified, three, I can just say, I can identify with them, you know, I can identify as a protective practitioner of them and then apply them because that would be formalistic. If anything, it it seems to me what we've been talking about today is that it's it's a strategy 
of reading and a strategy of thinking with and alongside, rather than placing Nietzsche as the kind of the director, the intellectual cadre who you know from whom the the, the themes and the ideas simply descend and we have to apply them. No, it's it's a strategy. It's a strategy because he has a certain tendency to identify certain weak points. Otherwise, it would be it would be um, you know. Things like a, to be like a Hegelian, you know, you find if you go to, you go through the encyclopedia because the system in for Hegel it ends up being a textbook. You read through that, you go, yep, okay, I've come out of the system, I've been processed through its sort of churn, and now my idea is to simply I'm now free to go replicate that system or replicate the logic of that system in the present day. This is what he says at the end of his. Um, lectures on history he says you know go bring the spiritual daylight of the present uh you know go go reveal go forth and multiply i guess or go forth and be singularly hegelian and i think it's it's very much worth thinking about because as a strategy it's it's notoriously or rather the benefit it's piecemeal um if you had to take any of this as you know particularly gospel or as entirely interlinked in a systemic manner like you get with someone like kant or someone like hegel it yeah, there wouldn't be a. It would be, of course, totally pointless because it would all simply be intersecting parts of each other, including the worst bits. I mean, we've had people like um, Martin Real and Robert Berners-Sconi talking about, for example, the, the the racial themes in Nietzsche, the themes of anti-blackness, very prevalent prevalent in his interests in nineteenth-century Germany. It isn't to say that um, it should be ignored, but it's, it's about taking a strategy for identifying the links between those parts of his philosophy and then seeing what parts can still be useful. It's more like a toolkit than a textbook, let's say. I think that's all the model here, the strategy of, of reading. Because I what I mean, for example, the, the question is also, why did Klosowski, why did Bataille, why were all these sort of French resistance anti-fascists, why were they looking to Nietzsche? Why were they saying, like, you can't have this guy, this guy has insights that are a bit too valuable for us to surrender them to, to the Germans, essentially, to the fascisti? And that, that is something really worth going for there, because there's something which he gets at the, the, psych, the psychoanalytic, or at least the, the proto-psychoanalytic bend of thinking about how people get, how people get these reified ideas, how people get these ideas of revenge, how people get caught in these infinite cycles of debt to the past, which don't allow them to think about the future. I don't know how much Nietzsche is a thinker of debt in regards to the future. So far, we know from Nietzsche's work is that you know Nietzsche doesn't like this idea of indebtedness to the past. This idea of indebtedness to the past is what creates these grand ideals like God or history, which you are meant to serve and are not meant to have any sort of creative, affirmative play within. Instead, you know, maybe Nietzsche would think about you know, the debt we have to the future, and in that case, you can make a Nietzschean point for, again, uh, retaliation, or as someone saying in the chat, or attack rather than revenge. What if, you know, for example, what if it was the idea of destroying the systems that have destroyed the um, you know, whole of humanity? Liberal capitalism is driving us into into global global climate catastrophe. What if we destroyed them not out of a, a sort of spiteful sort of attempt to undo that past, but rather for the sake of the future instead? A debt to the future, a creative debt, rather than a debt to simply negate the past. Great. Will, do you have anything before we go on to the next question? I do. I want to touch on I want to touch on democracy's leveling tendencies because I don't really think that like disciplinary power as we understand it and biopolitics as we understand it is possible without democratization and without leveling like i really like i don't 
for me, like a, a, a Nietzschean approach to democracy, like I can't, it can't work. For me, it can't work precisely because democracy is predicated on a production of equality that actually just means replaceability and producibility of constituencies, people. Um, like if, for, for me, it comes down to what Stuart Kendall said in his account of, um, of Bataille, where for Bataille, what Nietzsche unlocks is the absolute irreplaceability of, of human existence within the political. And what democracy attempts to do is to establish a norm as a virtual and then perpetually try to realize it as an actualized, as an actualized legislated, um, you know, effective politics. So for, for me, that's kind of the limit. The limit of democracy is, is precisely the leveling down. Um, because I think in a certain sense, you know, Karl Marx, uh, is right when he says that, you know, democracy is the perfection of the art of the state. Um, then beyond that, you know, the invisible committee to our friends corrects that vision and says, no, in fact, democracy is the perfection of the art of governance. That in fact, it's governance that sits at the core of, um, at the core of democracy. So, so I really like the, the, the use of, uh, the use of leveling, uh, in, in the uh, in the discussion, because I think precisely that's where the limit is. But I know we have one more kind of complicated question, kind of contemporary question about Nietzsche and Nietzsche scholarship that uh, perhaps people are finally ready for. Oh, you know, I forgot about that question. Actually, let's do that question real quick. It's about Domenico Lacerdo. Oh, we're doing Lacerdo now. Okay, let's just do it. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to get on to the more fun stuff, but let's just take care of the laundry here. Um, what is your opinion of the work of Domenico Lacerdo and his critique of Nietzsche? And we'll start with Devin, because I know you've been looking at it quite a bit. Yeah, I've been working through this book uh, quite recently and, and kind of intensified that effort as I as I learned that you guys were interested in discussing it on the pod today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to give the brief version of what was originally a, a lengthy takedown of this book. Uh, but I, I think that the theoretical benefit of Lacerdo's thousand page historical inquiry into Nietzsche's, you know, biography, in effect, um, would be to enrich our understanding of Nietzsche's philosophy by situating him in a complex historical and political context that may go missing, particularly from analytic philosophers' accounts of Nietzsche, right? What, what we actually get is a Nietzsche, I think, that gets pretty much completely dissolved into that historical context, who loses his distinctiveness as a thinker, and also where, where we lose, I think, any real sense of why we would write the thousand page book on Nietzsche to begin with, what it is that's valuable in his philosophy that would drive somebody who is on the left, a Marxist, to study this thinker, right? Um, and I think that, you know, when you're looking at Lasorda's book, I mean, if you're starting it, don't expect to learn anything about Nietzsche from a philosophical standpoint. Um, in fact, he's very quickly kind of expresses mystification or kind of uh, throws his hands up at the effort to make sense of Nietzsche's commitments. I mean, starting in the first chapter with Birth of Tragedy on philosophical grounds, on uh, aesthetic or artistic grounds, on biographical or psychological grounds. Um, so I think it's important to see Lasorda's book as rejecting in many ways kind of out of hand um, the idea that we can take uh, approaches to understanding the unity of Nietzsche's work 
uh, from a philosophical standpoint, from the standpoint of his life, from the standpoint of artistic or cultural concerns. For Lacerdo, it is really this political project, this reactionary, radical, aristocratic political project that is the defining kind of unifying theme of Nietzsche's work. Um, and I think the problem here is not that we won't recognize this kind of politics in Nietzsche. We obviously will. Um, you know, and we don't have to dig far in Nietzsche's unpublished fragments in order to find it either, right? But the kind of conventional or common sense picture we're going to get is that Nietzsche, Nietzsche's work was defined by a complex set of motives that included his philosophical concerns, included uh, ideas of a kind of grand artist, collective artistic project, uh, and it included political concerns. Um, and the question is why we should reject, I think, that more common sense picture of Nietzsche in favor of what is really a really harder historical reductionist view. Um, and I think what you see when you get into Lacerda is you actually have to accept a series of pretty questionable assumptions interpretively in order to really get there with him. You have to assume not only that uh, the unpublished uh, fragments are important, but in some sense, that that's where the real philosophy is done and that the published work is uh, even even as far as like, a facade of some sort, kind of covering up his more radical agenda. Um, we're uh, asked to essentially dismiss many of Nietzsche's own kind of stated concerns for how he wants his own philosophy to be read, whether this is in Eche Homo, whether this is his characterizations of himself as untimely. Um, and, you know, we're essentially given a series of historical analogs that allow us to triangulate Nietzsche relative to a reactionary politics of his time. Um, and I think at the end of the day, he has this critique of the hermeneutics of innocence. What we get in Lacerdo is more a, a hermeneutics of paranoid guilt. Um, instead of a real effort to grapple with what in Nietzsche's philosophy might lead him to these views, he is triangulated in relation to other thinkers of his time. And we are left with a kind of old, old style reactionary politics that leaves us wondering why we should be reading Nietzsche or what Nietzsche has to contribute in the first place. And I think this is why the book kind of fails to stage the confrontation that it wants to stage, which is to say, well, Nietzsche represents a formidable political challenge to the left and particularly the Marxist left. I mean, I think this is an animating idea of the book is to uncover what that challenge is. And I think we don't find a formidable challenge from Lacerda's account of Nietzsche. We find a rather weak one. <laughs> and we also lose any real sense of what philosophical motivations might have, have led Nietzsche there. And that's also why we might want to consider, you know, his philosophical arguments rather than seeing him as emblematic of his time. I don't think it's a very good book. I think there's a lot of rich historical detail. I don't think you'll actually learn much about Nietzsche by reading it. Thanks. Justin, have you engaged with Lacerda's work at all? A little bit, uh, mostly for this, and uh, I will make one singular joke, and then I will also say a couple things. But my joke is that uh, um, if you're writing a thousand-page book that you're then selling for five hundred dollars, approximately, upon publication, and then you're telling me that you're anti-aristocratic, I'm going to pause and wonder who you're writing this book for, because it seems like it might be aristocratic Marxist. Um, and that is my joke about uh, why I can be very dismissive of Lucerto at the outset. But I mean, I think that Devin is right in all of that and like how he's flattening Nietzsche. And I think that there's I think that there's a I think that there's a real you know issue here that I don't have time to get into. But like about the flattening and like the just like sucking all of the juice out of the concept for Nietzsche, you know, yeah. by Lucerto, where they just like, you know, 
And then I would also say that I think that like, if you take Nietzsche seriously and you take his critique seriously and you want to meet him on his own terms, you have to, I think, admit that he is in fact innocent in some way that Lacerdo would like him not to be. Not that he is meek and mild or doesn't have problematic views, but that his, you know, he is telling you that like, he is multiple. These things are, you know, I mean, like he's claiming to be something that Lacerdo will not engage with. And then Lacerdo is just saying that he is this other thing. And I think that as Devin has pointed out, you know, very accurately, like we could have had something quite, you know, I mean, there's critiques to make. Yeah, there's and, something interesting that could happen here. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not it's not this book. And I I hate to say it, but I think it's just not a very good book and not a very not a very well written book. So no, I have not read all a thousand pages. So mm. I think there's something to be said for the herb music of innocence at least. I mean, in terms of sort of any sort of philosophical sort of struggle between, you know, if there's going to be influences or philosophical groundings for a kind of Marxist or genuinely communist materialist politics, you know, how how innocently are we reading those influences? And, you know, I'm just going to, you know, for example, how innocently, for example, is someone like Hegel treated? I mean, Hegel is a, you know, he's the grounding system here, but, you know, he's given quite a lot of benefit of the doubt. I mean, I'm assuming that's fine because I'm just going to pick up the philosophy of mind here and. <laughs> Never mind. Um, Never mind. Uh, there's nothing innocent in there. Hold the it's, fort. It's <laughs> well then, well, we can, can we can we talk about though the function of Losutter's actual critique, which like is to also delegitimize the new left? Like that's what that's what this is that's also right. functioning to do. Right. Which is essentially like. We, we we put so much pressure on the word aristocrat when I think Lacerdo kind of wants to put pressure on the word rebel. Like, mm. that's the problem. Yeah. Are these rebellious queers and they're weird theories and they don't they don't want to apprehend the state. They're not good. They're not good Lukacians. who are going to delete that passage uh, like Lukacs did from history and class consciousness. They're these filthy, lumpen, PMC, you know, disaffected sons of petty bourgeois peddlers, this and that. I mean, it's, I mean, Losurdo, Losurdo himself shouldn't be taken fucking seriously. Like, <laughs> I mean, so I, like, this is, it's remarkable to me that this is, that this is a, a theorist who can write the, the, the black legend of Stalin and then at the same time provide a remarkably, uh, like I've only read the sections of this book that deal with Deleuze and Foucault. Um, so like, I don't quite know or really care. Like I'm shocked. Nietzsche, Nietzsche had um, horrendous, horrendous views about things. Um, but uh, it's the accounts of Foucault and Deleuze that I found, that I found insulting. I mean, insultingly bad scholarship, ridiculously terrible summaries of the birth of biopolitics. Society must be defended. He doesn't understand the basics of the text he's reading because he's not engaging with them philosophically. Um, you, know, you, get, you get very strange moves where, you know, we, we like the first chapter is focusing on birth of tragedy and instead of actually digging in at all to the text of birth of tragedy, we learn, well, in order to make sense of this, we have to go to this remark Marx made one time about Malthus. Um, and this is somehow going to unlock the secret of what Nietzsche what Nietzsche has to say, there's just a great deal of rhetorical dishonesty there, I think, um, when he kind of expresses a mystification about what the underlying texts mean that, you know, is, isn't quite possible. There's, there's a lot more going on there that you can you can get from the text without having to situate how many he's admitting. Yeah, and I think this strategy gets recapitulated in the work of someone like Jan Raymond, who I read a little bit last year, kind of in the same way that 
that Will had read uh, Lacerdo, looking for the, the mentions of Deleuze and Foucault. And it seems as if the primary motivation is to deactivate the influence of those figures against the, uh, the fallen hegemony of, of Marxism, which, I mean, I think is quite odd because, I mean, when you look at Deleuze and Deleuze and Gattari, they themselves are self-identified Marxists and they, you know, want to be an extension of that tradition in some way. And it just it seems rather unusual to me. But um, with that said, we've given Lacerdo his due today. Shall we move on? Um, here's a question that I think is interesting. What are some of Nietzsche's ideas you don't like and why? And I haven't spoken too much on this episode, haven't really revealed my hand, but I'll say that recently um, I've been going back through the gay science. And I think I told you, Devin, that like the gay science was like number three on my like top mm-hmm. 10 list. I think it's number one now. I, I've been going back through it and I've just been very inspired by the reading of it. However, I've been thinking in the vein of, like, I'm thinking about aesthetics right now, the concept of beauty and, you know, trying to get a little writing project going. So whenever Nietzsche mentions something about beauty, it kind of hit me a little bit differently this time. And I don't want to say that this is something that I, do, I don't expressly like, but it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And maybe you could help me work through it uh, somewhat. Um, well, one of the things that's difficult to stomach when you read Nietzsche are, you know, what seem to be, you know, the things about anti-blackness or, you know, the things that he says about women, which are sometimes meant to be ironic, other times reflect what seems to be the, the bigotry of that age. And the other times are, are, are maybe profound. And I think, you know, uh, the way in which he sees the lack of equality between the sexes or genders, if you will, as a way in which uh, to describe how the masculinism tends to overcode or consume what's different about femininity. And there's a particular line, I think it's in book four of The Gay Science, um, and it seems like a grace note in, in the whole of the text, but Nietzsche's talking about the very rarity of beauty. Um, and I don't have it next to me right now, but Nietzsche talks about being in the exact spot at the exact moment, looking at the clouds break and seeing the mountaintops. And, you know, life is filled with these moments, you know, where we're, we feel this kind of rapture, rapturous beauty, and they're so rare, and that's a lot like femininity. And it makes me think against my reading of somebody like James Hillman, the post-Jungian, who's you know very much influenced by Carl Jung and Freud, um, how Hillman makes a distinction between spirit and soul. And there's a way in which that my 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 prejudice towards Hillman's views here uh, and reading them against Nietzsche, it makes me wonder uh, whether or not. And, and I know this is one of our questions coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about Nietzsche's madness. I wonder if there was a kind of psychological imbalance. And, and I hate to put it that way, or at least there's a kind of like, there was a way in which Nietzsche did not allow himself a certain kind of rapture. Maybe that experience was rare against this sort of striving, sort of Ubermensch mentality, you know, the, the becoming the autonomous creator. You know, what is it like? You know, is there a side to our soul? Is there a side to our being as human beings that um, that craves to be enveloped in a certain way? Uh, you know, that that beauty is almost anarchic. You know, it does come on, you know, it does come upon us quite suddenly, quite sporadically. And, and it does enrapture, enrapture us. And if that is the case, is there something that we can do aesthetically to develop that 
tendency or to um, propagate those opportunities. And um, I, I'm wondering what you thought of that, perhaps before we get into what, what it is that you don't like about Nietzsche. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head where, you know, when you ask somebody what they don't like about Nietzsche, in general, <laughs> the views about women and the race science and views about yeah. race are going to be, you know, at the top of everyone's mind. But I think you're actually getting at um, what is an important tension uh, and I think an illuminating one in Nietzsche's aesthetics and views about art that does map on to his views about gender, his views about relationships between men and women. Um, and I do think biographically, we know that, you know, there was a time in his life kind of be shortly before he met Lou Salome, where he did see love as a kind of ideal form of rapture that he desired for himself and then ultimately failed failed to achieve right and you can there there's on a certain reading you can view nietzsche's you know writings on women after this period as you know him trying to cope with the the disappointment and bitterness of rejection but of course there's a, a great deal more going on um, but I think the passage that jumps out at me that's interesting is towards the end of Twilight, Twilight of the Idols, where he's going back to a discussion of the Babylonian. And he's sort of reflecting back on, on the kind of opposition birth of tragedy. Um, and he reverses course and suggests the possibility of associating the Dionysian with the side of the eternal feminine in mythology, which of course then has all of its own problems of kind of like putting forth this pure kind of ideal of woman um, that he's kind of, kind of abstractly negating some of his, his misogyny elsewhere. But I think the image that's actually really interesting is, is pregnancy. And this is an image or metaphor that will repeatedly come up in Nietzsche's work as a metaphor for the process of artistic creation, but also a description of a kind of will to power where the emphasis is no longer on the moment of acting per se, but on the moment of enduring, of overcoming a process of suffering for the sake of creation, right? Um, and that uh, pregnancy birth as a certain kind of Dionysian power I think brings Nietzsche up in some ways against the limits of a lot of the masculine orientation in the rest of his work. I think it forces us to challenge the priority he affords to certain masculine virtues of strength and aggression as kind of defining how we ought to picture will to power in kind of its paradigmatic instances. Um, so I do think that's like an area where a kind of imminent critique of Nietzsche that's both, both based on his philosophy and kind of biography is, is possible. Great. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to add? Maybe you had something in mind before we moved to Justin. So something that you didn't like. I did, I didn't want to color your your response. No, you're fine. I think we can go ahead and turn it over to Justin. I don't want Great. to dominate the discussion. Thank you, <laughs> Justin. Is there something that you don't vibe with in Nietzsche? Well, I mean, like I think that like the first thing that you think about. I mean, for me, is certainly the like the more uh, less easily read as uh as metaphor stuff on slavery the less easily read as metaphor stuff on women are certainly like two of the big problematic things i think that to go back to what you were talking about too and i think maybe <clears throat> moving into this idea of his madness thing i think that uh i mean if you take klosowski seriously which like you know it's he's definitely his interpretation of nietzsche i think that as he moves through his life and as he starts after there's the like after the eternal return occurrence and then there's the pre-eternal return occurrence for Nietzsche and I think that like you know there's this lifelong maybe even struggle of of keeping together his lucidity you know and sort of like 
I think that uh, you could see in the, in some of his earlier work, like this idea of like that lucidity, that um, oneness being broken apart um, by like beauty or something like that being more problematic or more something that he would turn away from as opposed to later on post uh, eternal return and his reckoning with it. And as he begins to sort of like unwind or come apart, depending on, uh, you know, your perspective on reading what happens to him. But uh, I don't want to take up too much time because I would like to talk about that. And I only have a few more minutes here. So. Sure. Yeah. I, and, and I just want to say thank you to both of you for coming on the show. This was a phenomenal conversation. If you're listening and you've stayed with us the whole time and you don't know us, support us at Horizon. Uh, we have links in the link tree there. And um, we always give little gifts to our guests and stuff. So if you help us out, um, we, we help them out, too. Uh, so with that said, let, let's move on to what is our last question. And I think um, this was. Uh, this was my question, actually. Is there anything within or lacking within Nietzsche's philosophy, which in any sense adequately or even partly explains his breakdown at Turin? Um, and, and Devin, you, you said that you're doing some work on this. Yeah, uh, the current project that, that I'm working on is really focused on Nietzsche's madness and also his lifelong experience of sickness um, and situating his philosophy as a kind of active process of, of struggling with that sickness and a kind of quest for health or convalescence. Um, these are themes that are persistent throughout his work. There are also themes that come up very strongly in Ece Homo, where he's kind of going back in a retrospective and trying to bring his books into a kind of unity based on how they fit in his life narrative. Um, and so I think, you know, the short answer for me is that I do think that Nietzsche's madness is a theme that is present throughout his life and that we can't uh, assign a clean break um, with the uh, breakdown in Turin or uh, really kind of stabilize the diagnosis by saying, well, it was syphilis and there was kind of a decisive moment where he descended to madness. Um, you know, regardless of what, what else we take that diagnosis to be, you know, there's strong evidence that Nietzsche struggled with both major depressive episodes and episodes of manic euphoria throughout his life. Um, you know, the way he describes his own experience of discovering the eternal return uh, has a great deal of the kind of language that you will hear from manic psychotics. Uh, and even his friends were, were kind of aware of this, would talk about the contrast between two Nietzsche's where he would be kind of his normal affable self and then he would slip into this kind of deeper, more sacred tone where he felt that he was kind of trying to convey something incredibly profound. And I take this as kind of like a, a kind of split that he is experiencing as a result of his, uh, you know, his experience of madness. Um, and I think that you can see this kind of tension between a perspective of sickness and depression and a perspective of health and joy and Nietzsche's ability to occupy both of these perspectives and kind of see them in their contrast um, and in their oppositions. Uh, you know, this is something I think is kind of pervades his entire thought uh, and can be used as a fruitful framing for, for approaching his work. Great. Justin, do you have anything to add before we close it out? Yeah, just that I think that like having read recently Pierre Klosowski's uh, Nietzsche in the Vicious Circle, if you're interested in like a Nietzschean reading of Nietzsche's sort of um, disillusion of his self and what that and how his the euphoria at Turin relates to his philosophy, like he goes into great detail there. Uh, but I just think that generally speaking, his argument is such that like this was a path that Nietzsche was on in terms of like listening to his body, hearing like the forces that were animating him, control, like producing him, 
And this was like a long-term thing that ended with the euphoria turn instead of um, not connected at all to his philosophy. I mean, I think that like this dissolution of the self, this like uh, creeping in of chaos um, and sort of unearthing that chaos underneath the self was very much, you know, part of his, uh, his work from early on. And, uh, you know, relating that to his breakdown, I think, instead of like necessarily like giving it a biological reading like syphilis or something like that is important to do. Uh, it's important to take seriously what Nietzsche took seriously about his breakdown, that it was evidence that, you know, he was um, coming to some sort of like truth that his body was revealing to him about uh, his particular nature. So. Great. Once again, Justin, Devin, you guys are awesome. We'll definitely have you back on again at some point. Um, this was a great time, and we want to extend our appreciation uh, for you sharing your time with us this uh, late spring. Of course, thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was a great discussion. All right. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. See you. We'll be right